Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Also coming to you today from New York City, our friend Max Boot of the Council on Foreign Relations in Washington Post. How are you doing today, Max? I'm good, thank you. And in our nation's uh, capital, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. Hi, Corey. Hello, David. And at an undisclosed location somewhere in the United States, we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University and of the new book, Tangled Up in Blue. How are you today, Rosa? I'm very well, David. I'm, I'm at a Comfort Suites Conference Center in Ogden, Utah. Well, you <laughs> took a wrong turn off the beltway there, didn't you? <laughs> but, She's in know, a it's, silo somewhere. It's very comforting. The Comfort Suites are very comforting. Yeah, no, they, they are. And I've actually been in Ogden, Utah, and that is comforting in its own way. Uh, th- there's almost nothing surprising in Ogden, Utah. It's just what you'd expect. <laughs> no, not at all. It's beautiful mountains. Yes, right, right. I meant sort of as you wander around the streets of downtown Ogden. Uh, is this where you've gone to celebrate International Women's Day? Is there a big? Yes, <laughs> yes, um, precisely, David. No, this is this is a a daughter spring break thing that's going on here. But as you can tell, my my own spring break is not all that exciting. It, no, it's very exciting. You know, I've, uh, Ogden, Utah is not that far from Sundance. And that's right. The, the mountains there and uh, have, have some familiarity with that. Um, so let's talk um, a second about International Women's Day from different perspectives. Um, um, and uh, let me let me start with you, Rosa, and, and we'll go around the room. Uh, but um, uh, there there was a, a little event that I noticed uh, on social media earlier today on women and national security, a subject that I know you're interested in. And uh, the speaker was Michelle Flournoy, and Michelle said that at this point you could staff the uh, sort of entire Office of the Secretary of Defense with women. The only thing keeping us from doing that is, you know, sort of institutional prejudice. How are we doing on uh, uh, getting women into senior level jobs in national security and foreign policy in your estimation? B minus, I would say. Um, I think, uh, you know, we have people like Kath Hicks, who's wonderful and is the uh, now the highest ranking civilian woman at the Pentagon ever as Deputy Secretary of Defense. Um, uh, we have a lot of fantastic women as uh, deputy assistant secretaries and in sort of advisory positions and chief of staff positions. Needless to say, um, I was very sad that Michelle Florina herself uh, was not nominated in the end by President Biden to be secretary of defense. Um, I hope that, you know, in a few years, whenever, whenever Secretary Austin steps down, that, that she will be, um, because I, I, I do think that we 
not just at the Defense Department, but across the national security community, we still have some missed opportunities. Uh, you know, the the men at the helm at the State Department, the National Security Council, are terrific guys. Um, they're also guys, and there are also a lot of terrific women who are eminently qualified for those positions and didn't get them. You know, that we 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 see, unfortunately. On the one hand, there's lots to celebrate. There are more women than ever in relatively senior positions. On the other hand, um, and I think, I can't remember what publication, Politico or someone at some point, did a little sort of map showing the seniority levels of men and women appointees in the Biden administration so far. And no shock, the women are largely clustered around the lower level positions as the the deputy chiefs of staff and the senior advisors uh, uh, rather than the tippy top levels. And, and that's a disappointment. Well, Corey, similar question, but I do note that, uh, you know, this is the first International Women's Day in which the United States actually has a woman who is in a nationally elected post, a first vice president. And we also have gender balance in the cabinet for the first time, which we've never had. And uh, first a woman treasury secretary, and we still have a woman as speaker of the house. Something's changing. Um, uh, you, I'm, I'm wondering if you share Rose's assessment and, uh, and what difference you think it makes. So as will not surprise deep state radio listeners, I think the glass is half full, whereas Rosa thinks it's half empty. Uh, she and I are no, both- No, I think it's half empty full. <laughs> it's just half that's it i'm not gonna I'm not gonna qualify the half it's half and, 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 and soon we'll sell to our members a glass that will be half empty or half full deep state radio branded glass and anyway go on <laughs> rosa and i are both founding board members of an organization called the leadership coalition for women in national security which secured from every a presidential candidate except Donald Trump, the commitment that they would make half of their senior appointments female. And that all by itself is huge progress. Um, the, the one thing I would say is that it's not newly true that you could fill the office of the Secretary of Defense leadership with just women if you wanted to. That's been true for a really long time. And a lot of the credentialing in national security is actually purposefully exclusionary. And so we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this isn't you know, the law of gravity and we're having to reverse it. These are a set of choices about who you put in senior positions. And I would just point out to people that no less a source than Stephen J. Hadley, former national security advisor, has said, the hardest thing about national security policymaking is it's devilishly hard to know who's going to prove any good at these positions when you put them into it. So we over-optimize to credentialing a lot, and it becomes exclusionary. Um, well, uh, uh, no, no, no doubt that's true. Max, um, I would like you to turn your attention back in, in time to November 22nd, 2005. Um, I'm sure you were just in high school then, but um, uh, it was a big day uh, and, the, and the one worthy of note in, 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 in International Women's Day terms. Um, 
because I was just looking back and I was sort of scrolling around and seeing, you know, how many women heads of state and government there are. And November 22nd, 2000, do you know what that date was? Do you want to guess what it was? No, I do. Hmm. Uh, that was the day that Angela Merkel took charge as the chancellor in Germany 16 oh. years ago. Um, and um, can't say I remember it like it was yesterday, but I kind of remember it sort of when it happened. And expectations were, and and right now, if you were to say, you know, name name top world leaders who've done, you know, good job in their in their posts, you'd likely come up with a handful, two, at least two of whom probably would be women, uh, Merkel and Jacinda Ardern in in New Zealand. Um, but you know, on a day like this, we look back on these things. Merkel's role is has been kind of. Uh, remarkable. And I just wanted, I, you know, I just thought I'd turn to you and ask you what you thought of the impact that she has had on the West and how valuable she proved when we, the United States was unable to leave. Well, Merkel has clearly been a giant. I mean, she is one of the world leaders who has had the greatest impact in the last couple of decades. And she will certainly be remembered along with other giants among female world leaders like Golda Meir and Margaret Thatcher, but just world leaders, period, because uh, she has been clearly uh, a, a pillar of the West, especially as you noted in the past four years when we had a president in the United States who refused to be the leader of the free world and in fact aligned himself uh, with anti-American autocracies like uh, Russia and Turkey and, and, and many others. And it was really Merkel who kept Europe together, kept the West together. And, you know, she has been vindicated over a lot of controversies, including when she admitted uh, more than a million immigrants uh, from the greater Middle East into Germany. And there were predictions of doom. And uh, this uh, caused a, a surge of nativism, not just in Germany, but across Europe and even in the United States. And yet, uh, by all accounts, those immigrants are now being successfully integrated and, and sort of the, in some ways, uh, I mean, this isn't directly her doing, but the fact that, you know, the, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine has been developed by uh, a Turkish-German couple, uh, immigrants to Germany, I think, is a vindication of what Germany and the world gains from immigrants in general, immigrants from the greater Middle East and in various other regions. And I think it's very much to Merkel's credit that she hung tough, refused to listen to the extremists and, you know, has stood up for, for Western values. I mean, she is certainly not perfect. And, you know, I, I would dissent from Germany's plan uh, to uh, create the Nord Stream 2 pipeline with Russia, uh, which is going to increase Russia's economic leverage over Germany. But in general, I think Merkel has done a tremendous job. And it's just at this point, it's hard to imagine German politics without her. It's, it's also a reminder, you know, of how weird it is that the United States has still not had a single female leader when so many other countries have had such notable female leaders. And obviously, I was, you know, deeply regretted that Hillary Clinton lost in 2016, because I'm pretty damn sure we would not have over 500,000 dead Americans right now if Hillary Clinton had been in office uh, when COVID-19 hit uh, because she she had a baseline of competence that, that Donald Trump clearly did not. But so, you know, I think now we're kind of looking to see if uh, Kamala Harris becomes 
she obviously seems to be the front runner to be the first uh, female president of the United States, which would be a great thing to see, not only first female, but also a woman who is uh, uh, part Caribbean and part Indian ancestry. Let me let me pick up on that, uh, Rose. I, I I saw a piece of Washington Post, one of those newsletters they put out today, um, and and I've been watching Kamala Harris's role closely, and I've been you know frankly a little uncomfortable to see so many times Joe Biden standing out giving a speech and her sort of standing quietly in the back, um, and so have been interested to sort of hear a little bit more, see a little bit more from the inside what she's doing. And this piece really devoted itself to the fact that she's doing a lot in foreign policy, uh, that she's had half a dozen sort of high level one on ones with foreign leaders, that she is regularly meeting with Tony Blinken, the NSC team and others, um, and that she's playing a fairly substantial uh, role across the board. There was quite influential uh, in a number of, of, of recent uh, significant foreign policy decisions. Uh, the last person that Biden spoke to on that, that they concluded that this was part of a process of grooming her for what Max is talking about. Um, what do you hear and what do you think? Yeah, I don't, you know, David, I don't have any inside information about this. And on the one hand, um, obviously, it is the vice president's job to stand there smiling as the president does things. Um, we have not, for the most part, in this country have, have, we've not had super empowered vice presidents. I think Dick Cheney is the, is the exception that proves the rule. You know, by and large, our vice presidents stay in the shadows and cut ribbons and talk to Girl Scouts and things like that. Um, I, I do think that we are in a, a relatively unusual situation precisely because Joe Biden, may he live forever, uh, is, is one of our older presidents. Um, and, you know, it's a, we, 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 we do have to, and, and I assume that he has to be thinking about, you know, will I want to be president again in four years when I'm in my 80s? Is that, is that going to make sense for me? Um, is that going to make sense for my family? And, and Kamala, Kamala Harris is obviously the heir apparent. So, so I, I do think that I hope that he and other senior officials in his administration are thinking very consciously about you know, how do we help her? How do we help her raise her profile? How do we help her? You know, she's obviously someone who, who does not come from a foreign policy background. She very much comes from a domestic policy background. Uh, and how do we make sure that she gets the experience that she needs so that she can play a leadership role in the future? I, I don't really have a sense of the degree to which she has wanted to be a decision maker thus far, as opposed to wanting to be in the room to listen and learn. I, I just don't know. Um, obviously she's, I don't know her personally, but she's someone who comes across in her, in her public appearances and debates as terrifically smart and a quick learner. So I don't have the slightest doubt that if, if foreign policy is an area where she wants to become an expert, that she will be able to do it. And I, and I hope that we have a system that will let her do that. You know, Corey, my, my next question could be called, you know, sort of what's wrong with Sweden? Um, and by that, I mean, there are parts of the world where female leadership is not only commonplace, it's typical. Right now, the prime ministers of Norway, Iceland, Estonia, Denmark, Germany, we mentioned Lithuania are all women. And the president of Finland is a woman. 
Um, Sweden's the only one that sort of missed out. Um, I don't know, is it the cold? Uh, the other thing that I notice about the lists of women who are leaders around the world is that they tend, not exclusively, but they tend to be more on the um, progressive side of the spectrum, the left side of the spectrum. Um, is there an impediment to women leaders on the right? Obviously we had Thatcher, there have been other examples. Uh, no, I don't think there's an impediment to female leaders on the right. Uh, I subscribe to the great woman theory of history that individuals matter hugely um, and uh, you, the generalization that political scientists very often aspire to uh, runs aground because the individual matters so much. I think it probably matters that those are multi-party systems not two-party political systems where you have coalition governments. So there are more opportunities for a broader, um, for broader avenues to the leadership than in the United States. The other thing that I think is probably true is that uh, the backsliding that occurs once an organization has had a female leader and then feels like it has solved the problem of women's empowerment because they had one female leader, rather than continuing to figure out, do we, are we putting any impediments on female leadership? At least one of the small handful of Republican hopefuls to President Trump's political coalition is Nikki Haley. And she has at least as much support in the Republican Party, uh, probably a lot more than Kamala Harris had in the Democratic Party primary. Um, so, you know, the circumstances matter, the individuals matter, but no, I don't think there's any uh, structural or cultural impediment to female leaders of conservatives. Yeah, and of course you have Liz Cheney, there was Sarah Palin, and, you know, there's Christy Nome, but um, we'll leave Christy Nome aside for the moment. Uh, let's shift gears a bit. Uh, last uh, Thursday, I think it was, um, Secretary of State Blinken gave a kind of foundational foreign policy address. I mean, self-advertised as, as a foundational address um, in which he described kind of eight pillars of Biden um, foreign policy. It was quite different from other such addresses that secretaries of state have given recently. And I just wanted to get your collective perspectives on it. Max, did you read or see the speech? Um, I, I did read it. Uh, I confess I probably should have gone back and looked at it again if I was going to comment on it today. But I mean, it seemed like basically a lot of pretty sensible things at a fairly high level of generality is how I would characterize it. I mean, I think it made a lot of sense talking about uh, you know, the need to balance uh, domestic and international policy and deal with climate change and green jobs uh, and to, you know, balance uh, transnational issues against great power competition with China. Uh, so, you know, it, it basically, uh, I would say on, on one level, it was sort of unremarkable because it was commonsensical. It's the kind of thing that I think that most mainstream 
students of foreign policy would say if they were asked to characterize what should be the U.S. priorities. Of course, it was remarkable in the sense that we had such crazy different sets of priorities over the last four years where we had this uh, uh, Meshugana president and his crackpot advisors who uh, were you know, rapidly anti-globalist, anti-democracy, anti-human rights, pro-authoritarian. So it's kind of revolutionary when Tony Blinken says that he will prioritize human rights, for example, in U.S. foreign policy. But I mean, that's kind of the norm in the past. That's what most presidents have done. But of course, you know, the tricky part now is how do you operationalize these fairly uh, high level generalities? And of course, we've already seen struggles over the human rights issue, where I think they're actually doing a pretty decent job. They've certainly increased the salience of human rights, for example, uh, sanctioning Russians for uh, the, the attempted murder and imprisonment of Alexei Navalny, where Trump wouldn't even admit that this guy had had been, you know, the Russian state had tried to kill him, uh, and, and Biden is actually putting the sanctions on. Uh, of course, there, there's, you know, understandable criticism that they're not doing enough in the case of the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, because they did release the report, which shows MBS's culpability in the, in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Again, Trump justified Congress, refused to release the report. So just the fact that they're releasing the report and they are sanctioning 76 Saudis uh, for anti-dissident actions, I think that in itself is significant. But obviously, there was also pushback saying, you know, why aren't you sanctioning MBS personally? Why aren't you going after the crown prince? And me personally, I'm actually, uh, I, I, I think I'm, you know, somewhat sympathetic to their explanation, which is that it would be very unusual to go after uh, the de facto head of an allied state. We don't go after a lot of heads of state. We don't even have to go after a lot of uh, uh, hostile heads of state. I mean, look at Xi Jinping, who is committing genocide against the Uyghurs, and yet I think there's a general understanding that despite his terrible crimes, we still need to deal with Xi Jinping. We have to deal with China. We can't just cut them off. And so likewise, likewise, I don't think we can cut off, uh, you know, I don't think we can cut off uh, MBS in Saudi Arabia, but it's a tough balancing act. It's not going to be easy to get right. And it's much easier to give these speeches than to try to carry some of these precepts out in, in practice. So Rosa, um, I'm, I'm interested, obviously, in your reactions, too. But I would I'd suggest one thing that seemed to me to be quite different about, or there were a couple of things that seemed to me to be quite different about uh, Tony's remarks. In, in, first of all, this is probably the first time in 20 years that a Secretary of State's made a speech like this in which he did not cite um, foreign terrorism as a top priority. Um, and that's a, that, that's a bit of a departure. It was also um, a speech that differed from past administrations of the past uh, 20 years, at least, both Democratic and Republican, and that it really steered a wide berth away from American exceptionalism um, and, 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 and really sort of embraced humility, um, particularly around the area of, of, of promoting democracy and talking about what we have to do, talking to allies about about being uh, more cooperative with them as opposed to a different kind of a tone. Um, but I think the biggest thing is of, you know, eight pillars, the first four pillars were domestic. 
It was, it, I mean, not that fighting COVID is exclusively domestic, but fighting COVID, dealing with economic change, fixing democracy, and that begins at home, and fixing our immigration policy. It was the most domestic-centric foreign policy speech that I've ever heard. And I've heard Tony subsequently mention that this was a kind of a shift in his lifetime. It's also mentioned in speech. What do you think about those things as distinctions from the past? No, oh, I, I think the two things that struck me and, and delighted me most about that speech uh, were exactly the things that you picked up on. One, one was the, the humility, um, you know, and the willingness to say things like, we can't go back to where things were four years ago. And also to say things like a lot of us, you know, Tony himself championed policies such as trade policies. And we now, I now see that we weren't paying enough attention to the impact they would have on vulnerable workers, for instance. And, and, and I think that's very powerful, right? Just foreign policy, it's not just the Steve Hadley, you don't know who will be good at it. Um, as we've discussed in past episodes, it's hard to know what's gonna work. It's hard to know what good means because there's no control group and it's a complicated, messy world. And, and I think that the, the willingness that uh, Tony showed in that speech to say, yeah, you know, we tried some things that we thought were the best we could do at the time. And now looking back, that wasn't quite right. And we're gonna keep trying is, is really quite powerful as a message, uh, both to the American people and to the world. Um, I also thought that, that it was absolutely the right thing to do to pitch this as a, as a speech to the American people, because I think one of the biggest failures of, of the foreign policy community and the way we talk about foreign policy has been that it has, it has come to seem too disconnected from the lives of most Americans that, that I think that many foreign policy experts have, have assumed that it's just self-evident why we need to care about the rest of the world. And if the 2016 election taught us anything, it should be that it is not at all self-evident to many Americans. Um, you know, and, and Trump exploited that in all sorts of incredibly damaging ways, but I don't think we should let ourselves as a community off the hook. You know, it's, it's our job to say, hey, here's why this matters. Here's why this should matter to you. Here's why this isn't just stuff that happens far away to other people that you don't need to care about. Here's why, what, here's why COVID policy, here's why COVID in Africa matters to you and me, you know, in Utah or Colorado or California or New York or wherever. And, and I, you know, I think that one could quibble with particular bits and pieces of the speech and you know, each of us probably have things we say, oh yes, that was right. And oh, I wish he'd said something different about this other issue. But, but I thought that, that that tonal shift towards both greater humility and towards a recognition that we need to ground our foreign policy in, in ways that make sense to ordinary Americans, in ways that link what happens to us in the world to what happens to us here at home is, is incredibly important. So, Corey, um... The, one of the other things that I found kind of interesting about the speech was that it really just drew a big circle around one country. It was not a kind of tour of the horizon. There were um, these kind of generalities that Max spoke about, talking about technology or immigration, economics, alliances, and so forth. But the one country that there was a real focus on, and in fact that he characterized as um, the biggest geopolitical test of the 21st century is China. Um, he, he, you know, he mentioned Russia, Iran, and North Korea posing challenges. He mentioned 
crises in Yemen, Ethiopia, and Burma. But he then said, look, China can change the international system. What struck me about this, and again, I may be reading too much into it, and I'm interested in your perspective, but that he put into one sentence a view towards China that was, I, I, I thought, appropriately balanced and nuanced and different from a lot of the rhetoric that we've heard uh, from Trump and from others. Because essentially, he, what he said literally was, our relationship with China will be competitive when it should be, collaborative when it can be, and adversarial when it must be. In other words, he did not say this is an enemy. He did not fall into the trap of a new Cold War. Uh, and I remember still to this date, one of my favorite of the many, many deep state radio episodes that the hundreds that are out there was your debate with Graham Allison on the <laughs> Thucydides trap. Um, and, uh, and I'm wondering what you think of this approach to China. So I too liked the speech. Um, I liked its anchor points about American values uh, being important. I loved its anchoring that our foreign policy actually matters to Americans. Uh, their safety and their prosperity rely on a good American foreign policy. I liked the way he positioned the China uh, challenge, although you know, the where we can, where we must felt like good speech writing, um, not so much a guide to policy. I mean, I think the Trump administration would say they did the same thing um, when manifestly they're headed towards different policies. Um, I also really like the way the Secretary of Defense and his team are talking about China as the pacing challenge. I think that too dials down the sharp edge of these guys are our enemy and we need to be red in tooth and claw to deal with them because it does suggest a greater appreciation than the Trump administration had that using the strengths of free societies is the way to handle China's challenge. Ideology matters, transparency matters, the rule of law matters. Um, it's not just a military competition. And then in fact, by militarizing the competition, we play to China's advantages because they are looking to upset, first and foremost, the regional balance of power. So um, I too, and like Rosa, I liked the humility of it. Um, it's beautiful that that's coming back in fashion uh, and long overdue. Uh, whether this will lead to a manifestly different China policy, I think is still an open question, right? We're leaving the tariffs on China. Treasury Secretary already said that. Uh, you know, Admiral Davidson, the Indo-PACOM commander's request for $27 billion to be able to gun up in Guam and other places, um, you know, uh, that, that's a pretty red in tooth and claw kind of approach to the military competition with China. So I think it remains to be seen what the actual policy that emerges will be. But I agree, I really liked the sound of it. Um, well, you know, on that point, Max, um, you're, you're somebody who has written about uh, our engagements in Asia in the past. 
I think one of the differences, one of the very few things that I think is going to carry forward uh, from from Trump foreign policy, and there are a couple. Corey mentions uh, shift in trade with China, is the focus, which was just beginning towards the end of of uh, of the Obama administration on the Quad as a central counterbalancing alliance in that part of the world. And in fact, Biden has talked about a Quad summit um, uh, and uh, this, this is gonna, in a, in a couple of weeks, this is gonna take place. Uh, and that's the US, Australia, India, and Japan. And, and, and so the question becomes, um, you know, how, how, do you, how do you strike the balancing act? But it does seem to me that finally, I don't know what it is, 12 years after uh, uh, Hillary Clinton announced it, that we're actually going to probably start to pivot to Asia. You know, I think there is certainly a desire to pivot to Asia, but as you noted, there was a desire in the Obama administration as well. And, you know, as as Mike Tyson famously said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the nose. And then we got punched in the nose with the rise of ISIS in Iraq and Syria and had to pivot back to the Middle East. We will see if we can escape the clutches of the Middle East, because right now we are engaged in a fairly delicate and dangerous dance with Iran, uh, where they have attacked a couple of our bases with, with their proxies uh, in Iraq. We struck back against some Iranian militia groups in Syria. Uh, they are, have given mixed signals about whether they want to come back immediately to negotiate uh, the resurrection of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear accord. So that's a very dangerous situation um, because there is the real possibility for a further escalation as we hit back for against them for hitting our base and they hit back and so forth and so on. And their nuclear program is now, uh, you know, moving ahead much faster than it was when the when the Iran nuclear accord was in place. So that's that's a real danger. And of course, there's Afghanistan, where Biden faces a May one deadline uh, to figure out whether he's going to withdraw the final U.S. troops, 2,500. And if he does that, the odds are that the Taliban will take over, or at least at the very least, that Afghanistan will will once again be ravaged by an all-out civil war as it was in the late 1990s. But of course, if he keeps the troops there or even expands their numbers, uh, then you know he will be liable to the criticism that he's not quote unquote ending the, the forever wars, which probably is not the way that we want to refer to it. But um, there's no question that going in, I think probably even more so than the Obama administration, this administration does want to downgrade the importance of the Middle East and focus more on East Asia, uh, which I certainly think is warranted by the increasing power of China. When you talk about the Quad, I mean, I think what you're really talking about is U.S. relations with India and, and the attempt to strike an alliance of sorts with India, which goes back at least to the George W. Bush administration. But uh, because, you know, the other members of the Quad, I mean, you're talking about Australia and Japan, we already have the deepest security ties with those countries. There's not much more we can do. It's really trying to deal with India and try to use India uh, to contain the growth of Chinese power, which makes sense in a real politic sense, but it's complicated by what's going on in India, where Prime Minister Modi 
is attacking Indian democracy because before we could make the case that not only was there a strategic alignment with India, but also uh, an ideological alignment because they were the world's largest democracy, but Freedom House just downgraded them in its latest Freedom in the World report from being free to partly free because Modi is doing so much to undermine democracy, to attack the Muslim minority, to go after journalists and academics who criticize them. I mean, that's, you know, that goes back to the issue that I raised a few minutes ago, which is how to operationalize our commitment to human rights when it comes into conflict with some of our strategic imperatives. And that's certainly going to be a very delicate balancing act in the case of India, because I don't think we can just ignore what Modi is doing to destroy Indian democracy. But at the same time, we can't write off India either, because, you know, you, from a very realpolitik sense, China is a much worse human rights violator. China is a, is a real threat to us. So we do have to work with India to some extent, but trying to figure out how to make that work is going to become more difficult given the uh, illiberal direction in which Modi is taking that country. Yeah, no, I think the U.S.-India relationship is going to become more complicated as we go forward, certainly. Uh, Rosa, was there anything that you felt was missing from what Tony Blinken has said, uh, said in his speech or in the sort of greater foreign policy pronouncements of this administration so far, an area you'd like to see um, better addressed or more, more addressed? Oh, gosh, that's a hard question, David. And, and, and like Max, I, I haven't read the speech, uh, reread it in, in great detail. Um, you know, I, I agree with Max that what's missing, but what's always missing, frankly, is a, a level of granularity. Um, it's, it's obviously, this was intended to be a speech that laid out a broad, a broad framework, not a speech that said, and here's exactly what we're going to do in each of these places on each of these issues. Um, so I think it's fair to say it's missing details. On the other hand, I think it's, it's equally fair to say, you know, that wasn't its purpose. And, um, and it's still very, very early days for the whole administration. So this is not much of an answer to your question. I don't know. I, I feel like overall, I'm pretty happy. I feel like they're striking most of the right notes. I, I think Max is absolutely correct that, that the issue of, you know, what do you do about human rights in China? What about Saudi Arabia? What, they're, they're hard issues, you know, that, that, and I think they're trying to thread that needle of being crystal clear that this is not okay. You know, here are our values. Here's why we think that this conflicts not only with US values, but with international, internationally accepted norms of human rights. And yet at the same time, the, the pragmatic recognition that we, we, we are not in a world where we can say, screw you, we don't, we don't, we don't care. We want nothing to do with you and we'd rather keep our hands clean. Um, that there are so many areas, you know, particularly with China, obviously, where we, we have to find a way to work together. Uh, you know, the, the alternative is so horrific for both countries and for the world. Um, you know, so I, I, I'm overall, I'm pretty pleased. I think they're doing a good job. Uh, uh, you know, I'm sure that they will make mistakes because everybody does and because foreign policy is hard. But at this point, there's no major, major thing that I feel like is egregiously missing. Um, so what, can I suggest one thing that I would have liked to see that was missing? Perfect. Uh, that, that was the question I was going to ask. <laughs> I'm sorry to preempt. It's my George W. Bush administration reflexes showing. <laughs> oh, wow. wow. <laughs> um, uh, the one thing I would have liked to have seen was an acknowledgement that the United States is about the luckiest country in the world because we have great neighbors to our north and to our south. And building on the 
depth of cooperation that exists to create even greater uh, common uh, economies of scale, movement of labor, uh, right standards, uh, it will be a hugely important part of managing China's rise, right? If we think we're gonna nearshore any supply chains, Canada and Mexico are great places to do that. Um, and so I'd, I would have loved to see more of that, but I agree with all the praise Rosa lauded the speech on. You know, it's an interesting point, Corey, and we've failed to discuss it enough here, but you know, there's a part of the speech that talks about technology policy um, and 60 plus percent of the world's lithium is in South America. Uh, there's a part of that that talks about obviously um, uh, uh, issues like uh, cyber the Im implied in the technology thing. Uh, and while there's a big bilateral element to that, um, there's also a big regional um, element to that. China is the number one trading partner and investor in many parts of Latin America right now. So if you want to have some balance, you've got to do more in this hemisphere. Uh, and I, I think this administration has started to do some things there, but you're right. It, it was not mentioned uh, uh, much, although I, I believe Biden's first leader-to-leader uh, -leader exchange was with Trudeau, wasn't it? I think so. Yep, it was. Um, so there is a there 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 is an awareness there. Well, you know, I think this is a good thing. You know, here we are. We we all agree, taking it from different perspectives, that we're off to a pretty good start here, uh, and that Tony laid this out in a way that was uh, um, uh, uh, sound and sensible, and and it contained some shifts that were positive. Uh, obviously, we'll keep an eye on this, and we'll keep talking about it here at Deep State Radio and the other shows that we do on the DSR network. Um, and I encourage you to follow us along each week as we've got a bunch of them uh, coming up, uh, for example, on, on Wednesday on our show, Ask the Blob, uh, where last week we did a great show with Rosa about her book. We've got a couple of folks who, who uh, have uh, uh, the distinction of having served in the Trump administration, but uh, who now uh, are part of a, you know, a, a, an effort to reclaim the Republican Party. Uh, you know them from past shows. Uh, go to the dsrnetwork.com to find out more, join us and pose questions. Um, and we'll have all our other regular programming coming up. And uh, uh, we, uh, we uh, in the interim, we'll uh, thank Max. Thanks to Rosa. Thank Corey. Thanks all of you to listen for, for to all of you for listening and um, uh, uh, stay healthy out there, everybody. Bye-bye.